0: you're just jealous, as the statement goes. And that can go with quite some sting. It can feel rather harsh. Those can be ugly words. No one wants to be told, oh, you're jealous. It reveals something distasteful about us when we are given over to jealousy. For often jealousy is accompanied by the ugly stepsister, envy. I want those good things for myself instead of you having them, right? Whether it's the good promotion or it's the good-looking girlfriend or the sports car or the attentive husband or the compliant kids, whatever it is, we envy God's good gifts that He gives to others, and so we become jealous. We want those for ourselves. And it gives way to other ugly things, like where we can become bitter or we become, say, unfriendly to that person who got the promotion instead of us. Uh, We start actually hoping, well, maybe it won't work out, you know, maybe they'll raise the relationship, there'll be a breakup and I'll be the rebound or whatever it is. We're hoping for a failure for them. And it's just like the opposite of the golden rule, isn't it, that Jesus taught us? Instead of, you know, if you put the spirit of it, we want the good for others that we would want for ourselves. Uh, jealousy, we live by this we wish bad on others for the bad we would never want for ourselves. And it gives way to things, again, envy, resentment, spite, selfishness. Jealousy typically is a very ugly thing, but is it always? So that's where we turn now, because we see in this text, God actually calls himself jealous. And God is good all the time, even in his jealousy. And so what does this mean? And to teach us about this, God has even given us a picture of a good kind of jealousy. And it's the kind of jealousy that is resident or should be in a marriage, in that exclusive commitment of a husband and a wife to one another. Hence, we hear in our vows things like this. Will you, in forsaking all others, keep yourself only for her all the days of your life? In marriage, it's a call to this exclusive relationship that no one else is allowed into, no one else is a part of, no one else has rights to, right? That's the expression. You're forsaking all others and devoting yourself, wedding yourself to one and one and only. God's telling us, I'm committed to my people like that. I am jealous for them. I have a marriage-like, you might say, a lifelong commitment to never run away from them, to never separate from them, to always want best for them. And we know this expressly because he came down from heaven, didn't he? And he took on human flesh. And he's in the process of that, pursuing us and calling us. And he's winning us with his love as he died for our sins and our evils. He took great lengths. You better believe he's jealous for you. You better believe he's zealous for your love. You're his. He bought you if you're in Christ. And he can't stand the thought that we would give ourselves to anyone or any other great, greater love. If God pursues you like this in Christ, you understand, this is not an open relationship, right? It's exclusive. And he's committed to you. And he calls us, his people, to reciprocate to be so committed to him in response. And that's the theme that uncovers in this text is that God saved you for himself. He saved you for him. He saved you that you would know him, that you would be in relationship with him. He saved you and so he's jealous for you. He wants you, he's zealous for your heart, for your love, for your affection. And so now the call is, may we be faithful to him. May we be so jealous. May we be so committed. May we be so true to who he is for us. And we're going to see three strategies for getting at that. How can we stay true to this God? We're going to find three in this text. And the first is this. If we're going to stay faithful, if we're going to stay true to the jealous God, you got to first beware of bad influences. You got to beware of temptations. You got to beware of the corrupting influences that are all about us. we'll see this in verses 10 to 17. A key to fighting the fight to be faithful is you got to keep these corrupting influences at bay, at, at a side, because as we'll see, that expression, the slippery slope, it's a real thing. Now we'll discuss why it's so real, namely because our sinful hearts, they love to slide. But if you recall, to reset the context here in Exodus 34, what we have here is something of a relationship do-over. We have a relationship restart with God. Of course, what had happened? Where have we been? God delivers Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them to Mount Sinai to himself. Remember this in Exodus 19. I brought you to myself to be in relationship with me, such that I'm going to live with you. We're going to build this tabernacle tent, and it's going to be great. You're going to be near me, yet... In the process, when Moses was getting all the plans for that, what was Israel doing in the meantime? Disobeying him, making the golden calf, right? And so the relationship, like those Ten Commandments, literally those stone tablets got broken, shattered. Their relationship with God was severed. And so God was ready to wipe them out and start over. And Moses pleaded with God, remember your promises. And so God says, all right, I'll be merciful, And Moses goes again, remember your promises. You would go with us. And God says, yes, of course, I will be merciful because I'm a merciful God. So Moses, get some new stone tablets. Let's start over. And that's where we've been. And that's where it even says in verse 10, as Moses gets these new tablets, God says in verse 10, this is what we're doing. Behold, I'm making a covenant. It's like that never happened. Let's start over. Let's have a new, fresh relationship. I'm making a covenant, verse 10. Before all your people, I will do marvels. This is what his covenant commitment looks like. Such as not, has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among, among you, excuse me, among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it's an awesome thing that I will do for you. What's he saying? I'm committed to you. I'm with you. I am for you. And you're gonna see the impact of that. In other words, it pays to have God on your side, right? And that's what he's going to show them. Things that he describes are going to be marvelous. Or the end of verse 10, for it's an awesome thing that I will do for you. And to be clear, when we mean awesome here, we don't mean how I typically use the term, oh, that's awesome. Or that's, I don't know, what's the other colloquial terms? Cool, fantastic, dope, I don't know, whatever you want to throw in. That's not the kind of awesome we're talking about. We're talking about this is the kind of awesome that makes you tremble. This is the kind of awesome that makes you scared a bit. This is the kind of awesome that makes your knees knock. Because you have seen a power unleashed that you know you have no control over. Such, what are we talking about? Verse 11. He says to them, observe what I command you this day. Behold, so here it's going to look like, I will drive out before you, and these are all the nations that are currently in the promised land that they're about to go to. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And God's saying, I'm going to fight for you there. I'm not just taking you in there and leaving you yourself. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be your lead warrior. And he showed that right when they entered the promised land at the start. Remember? The first city they go to attack in the promised land, remember what it was? Jericho. And Jericho. His marvelous work, wondrous work at Jericho was seen as the walls just came a-tumbling down, right? And God gave them a great victory that was not at their hands. What did they do? They stood around and blue trumpets and walked around walls. That's not a great military strategy unless God's fighting for you. But as he fights for them, striking fear, maybe in the very people of God, let alone the enemies of God, He's saying, this is what my commitment to you looks like. So even there at the start of verse 11, he says, I want you to be committed back. Observe what I'm commanding you today. I'm committed to you. Be committed to me, which looks like obedience. Because this is a relationship. It's, there's a mutual. There's a back and forth here. It, it's a communion. We've talked about this. It's a sharing back and forth. So God says stuff, we trust him and we obey. That's how relationship works. Conversely, then, if we're going to maintain that devotion, maintain that commitment, you know, for Israel, it's like, God set this all up and we already broke it. Well, thankfully, he's gracious, so we get a restart. But how are we going to ever stay here? How are we ever going to be continually in this relationship with God? How are we going to stay true? And the first strategy he gives them, well, you need to be really careful about who you make your other commitments to. You need to be really careful about who you make your other covenants with. So we go on to verse 12. This is really where we see you need to be, you need to be aware of these bad influences, these corrupting influences. Verse 12, take care. Literally in the Hebrew, guard yourself. Protect yourself. Lest you make a covenant an agreement, a relationship with the inhabitants of the land to which you're going, the people dwelling in the promised land, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites. Why? What's the danger? Lest it become a snare in your midst. Watch yourself. Beware. Be careful. Watch out who you do deals with and who you're around. Why? Because they're going to be a snare for you, not a drum. A trap. They're going to catch you by the foot and pull you down to your ruin. That's what happens if you, say, become friends, so to speak, with the inhabitants of the land. They're going to bring you down, trip up your faith, and lead you away from God. Why? Because they don't love God. They don't know what it means to be his people. So in particular, God's instructing Israel, as you're going to go in and as you take over this promised land, Because this is interesting about how God's going to provide for them. They're going to live in these people's houses. They're going to have their houses, going to have their cisterns, going to have their fields. They're not going to have to do all these new constructions like we might see around here. They're going to take over the old houses, but they got to get rid of all the old forms of worship. So look at this. They got to eliminate all the vestiges of that pagan worship. Verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break down their pillars and cut down their ashram. These altars and pillars and ashram, these are all the trappings and equipment they would use to worship their so-called gods. And none of it can stand. None of it can remain. You know, there's no, let's put it in a museum. There's no, oh, let's leave it up for posterity's sake. These clearly are statues you got to take down, Right? You don't leave them up. You've you, you got to grind it to any little bits like they did with the golden calf. Why? Lest you drift into likewise idolatry. That's the risk. Because again, there is a slippery slope and our hearts love to go find it. And why does he say, take such pains, get rid of all of it. Don't leave any vestiges of it. Why? Because he loves you. That's the answer he's going to give. Because he's jealous for you. Because he's committed to you. And don't let anything else around you dare pull you away. Look at verse 14. For you shall worship no other god. Why? For the Lord Yahweh, his name is jealous. He is a jealous God. God saying, jealousy is my middle name. Now, usually... (laughs) we would find that very unappealing, unattractive. Jealousy is your middle name. Usually we don't even care to admit we're being jealous. And he admits it here, boasting in it. But of course, this is not a bad jealousy, but a good and right one, like as we opened in the sermon. Like a good committed husband should be jealous of his wife. Why? Because they have an exclusive relationship one to another. And the same, the wife back with her husband. She doesn't want to share him with anyone. And that's not right. He is hers and hers alone. And that's baked into the marriage relationship. And God's saying, I thought of marriage to teach you about how committed I am to you, how jealous I am for you, my people. That's why it ends up becoming a model for how we should love in our marriages, right? We know this. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives As Christ loved the church. And what how what did that love look like? It was tangible. It wasn't just, oh honey, I love you. It was, I gave myself up for you, love. I died for you, love. I took your sins to win you in love. So you better believe he's jealous for you. He moved heaven and earth for you, for your love and devotion. And he wants what's best for you. And he knows that's him. So don't let those other temptations stick around. In other places in the law, it, the temptation is, well, you're going to go investigate just in your curiosity. Have you done this with sin before? Like you, maybe you weren't even too attracted to it, but you wondered about it. And then before you knew it, you weren't engaging in that sin. You got to keep away. Why? Because your heart is prone to wonder. He knows this. That's why he says what he does, because even as they wander into disobedience, it's not just, oh, I broke a sin. You're wandering into unfaithfulness. He gives it this picture in verses 15 and 16. You're wandering into not just idolatry, but spiritual adultery. Look at verse 15. Why do you have to do all this? Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, you know, one little step, and then what happens? then when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you're invited and you go and eat at the sacrifice. Before you know it, you're you're worshiping the pagans too. And then verse 16, you take of their daughters for your sons, you intermarry with them, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. I mean, it's just so striking, that expression, whore after. What's he saying? This This is spiritual adultery. This is spiritual unfaithfulness. This is spiritual prostitution is what you're doing to yourself when you give yourself over to these other loves. You're getting in bed with another love. It's just this, it's the pinnacle of gross unfaithfulness. But it just starts with that little compromise. That little, yeah, we can, we can hang. And that innocent moment of carelessness, you put your guard down, Your neighbor invites you over, you start smelling the bacon coming out of the pagan temple, and you're like, oh, man. Then you intermarry, and before you know it, all your sons and daughters are bowing down to statues. And that's what I mean, the slippery slope is real. It's a little compromise and leads us to something bigger. But get this, we usually talk about the slippery slope, so we keep ourselves, well, don't do this, do this, and keep away from those things, so and so forth. But the issue he's even drawing out here, the issue of the slippery slope isn't those things, it's you. This is the risk. It's your heart. It's what's influencing your desires, what's shaping what you want, what is around you that makes you comfortable with different things. You know, as people engage and move into even what are gross sins that our society are celebrating, what's the story the world's using to get people there? It's all these personal anecdotes, isn't it? Even as the leading politicians in our country, they were referencing, well, I have a family member who is gay or who, whatever the case may be. And so it must be okay, anecdotally. We become comfortable with these things, irrespective of what God has told us, right? It lures us away. And so God's saying, you got to watch your wandering heart. You got to be on guard. Keep those things at bay. And almost on cue, Israelites, maybe like argumentative teenagers, want to object and say something like back to God, listen, daddy-o, come on, you're being over the top, man. I'm not about to worship some statue. I'm not an idiot. And then God gives them verse 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You remember when you did that? Wasn't that long ago. Yeah, the golden calf. Just over a month ago. That's what they did. No, your heart is prone to wander. It's stiff-necked. And we're saying, yeah, oh, Lord, I feel it. What you're letting in, the messages you're letting in, Because again, the slippery slope's real, and it's not so much the slope as it is your heart. So what's the call? Don't overestimate your spiritual strength. And the thing is, because we come into this sin gradually, incrementally, one little faithless step after another one. As I've heard a pastor say, I've shared it with you many times, when anyone falls into, say, like a really serious Sin. sin, adultery, He never falls very far. And what does that mean? It's the adulterer doesn't just wake up one morning out of a good marriage and go, man, I'm just gonna go ruin it all today. I'm gonna go sin wildly. No, the path to infidelity is made or in its wake are a series of compromises of unchecked thoughts, unbridled comments until that sin is just one little another small step. And that way, sin, it's like getting into a hot tub, not jumping into a pool. You know, you're really hot on a summer's day. You can just go jump in, cannonball, boosh. It's refreshing. That's not how we sin usually. Uh, We sin more like getting into a hot tub. You know, you put your toe in, you're like, whoa, that's super hot. But you leave it in there a little bit, and you're like, okay, this is feeling pretty good. And you start easing your way in. And then as you're in there, you start feeling a little funny. You're looking around. You see all the warning signs posted do not remain in here 20 or more minutes. And you're like, nah, I don't know. And you pass out or something horrible. <laughs> the point is sin lures a sin. It feels good, but it's going to try and kill you. You got to be vigilant, you got to be aware who's giving you messages. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you listening to? Who, you, who do you admire? Who do you pattern yourself after? What are you binding yourself to? Because we are so easily, imperceptibly, accustomed to sinning. Especially when those around us, they're encouraging it. And that's what the world's gonna do. It's set on fire by the devil. So who's around you? Whose messages are you letting in? Who do you listen to? Now, Christian, some of this, we can't help, and nor in a sense should we, if you know what I mean. That is, we are called to be in this world to influence them for Christ. We are not called to excise ourselves out of it and make little communes. So you're going to be in your workplace, you're going to hear godless chatter, and maybe even the perspective of your bosses, of the, of the the business model, is going to be not honoring to Christ. Or you're going to be in your school. Or you're going to be in the neighborhood. Just uh, in this world, internet, social media, wherever you are, you're going to hear perspectives and values that run against Christ, God's word and the scripture. And we're called to be in that. But to influence them for Christ, we're not called to become of the world, to so contextualize, to be like them, to be shaped by their values. And that's easy to do. So you got to be on guard. you got to watch out. Yes. Because given our mission, we have to be engaged. But you better, verse 12, take care of your heart. Guard your soul. Yes. Watch out. Be diligent. Respect the danger. In short, do not overestimate your spiritual strength. You are prone to wander. Take heed lest ye fall. Right? That's step one. The second strategy. Set up regular reminders verses 18 to 28, how do we go on the offense, so to speak, against the constant bombardment and the messaging of the world? God's plan is to set up these regular reminders that center us again, reform our identity, recall to mind who we are, who our God is, And that's seen here as the Lord answered for his people. He creates these reminders in their calendar as seen in these feast days that they're going to regularly observe. It's going to remind them who they are, who their God is, what he's done and what he will do. Because you understand these feast days are going to run through them every year or even every week with the Sabbath. And it's putting just things in their calendar where they have to just stop and say, okay, the world's telling me this. That's what all are saying around me. But God, what have you said? God, who am I? And it starts off, it goes to the first festival of the religious year, and that's the Passover, which is encapsulated as well by this feast called here in verse 18, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Of course, as they left Egypt, they didn't have time to have a baked meal, so they had ancient fast food, the unleavened bread when they left slavery from Egypt. But God's saying every year, you're going to kind of reenact that to go back and remember. Remember what I did for you. Look at verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. And this is nothing new. At the time appointed in the month of Abib. From the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. And if you remember, when God brought them out of Egypt, he said, we're doing a calendar reset. This is New Year's Day for you, this is day one, this is January one, so to speak, when I delivered you and saved you out of Egypt. This is where your life begins. And every time you cross that every year, you need to stop and remember, who am I? I'm redeemed by God, that's who I am. I'm one saved out of slavery. I am one who's been bought with a price, I've been redeemed. Because they're to remember that about every year as they come to the Passover. Because that's the picture of Israel's redemption, it's a, or Israel's salvation out of Egypt. It's a redemption. The price of blood was paid, all of those lambs on the doorposts, and so God was buying Israel for himself, that they are his. And they would even react, reenact this truth, not only at the first of every religious year, but even any time a firstborn came into their house, whether an animal or whether a son, Look in the middle there, verse 20, in regards to the sons. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. You're going to pay a price for them and redeem them back out of the judgment and for yourself, for God. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. The start of every year and every new birth of a firstborn, they're reminded, they're stopped to say, We belong to God. We've been saved by him. We've been loved. We've been redeemed. This defines them. And God's saying, I'm not going to let you forget that. Then in verse 21, we have this weekly remembrance in the weekly Sabbath, this day of rest where you are going to, as you go through your work week, you're going to stop in Israel one day a week. It's a weekly checkpoint. You're running along in the road. It's a weekly checkpoint. Hey, 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 stop for a second. Are you trusting God? Are you willing to put down your own efforts, your own abilities to say, God, I'm ultimately trusting you to provide? That's what the weekly Sabbath did for Israel. Furthermore, he lists these two other feasts, and these feasts have to do with how God provides in the harvest time. He had the feast of weeks and the feast of in gatherings. They are mentioned in verses 22 and 23. We're not going to go to the details here. We did that when God first gave all the details in chapter 23, some time ago. But again, they're revisited here almost word for word to remind them. Because again, what's the context? You're my people, but you blew it. We're restarting because I'm a gracious God, but you need to get, keep faithful. And how are you going to do that? You need these reminders to be checkpoints for you, to be, to be that, annual checkup, so to speak, or maybe a weekly checkup in the Sabbath to stop and say, where are you? You trust in me? Have I been trusting God this week? Or for them, am I trusting God to provide in the harvest? Am I going to stop and acknowledge and give praise to the source of all the good that's come to me? That's what these feast of weeks and in gathering was all about. And again, this is a contrast for them with the ancient world. You probably know this, or maybe you're not aware. In the ancient world, all of their worship really revolved around how can we manipulate the gods to give us a good crop this year? What can I do to make sure my wheat harvest survives? What God can I please? But contrary to that, these harvest feasts are all about, no, it wasn't, you didn't get a good crop because of Marduk or Baal. These were the gods of the Canaanites, for example, Nor was it Mother Nature or Buddha or Allah. Yahweh gave us this because we are his people and we're going to praise him for it. And he says, take that time every year not to forget it. And then furthermore, to make them not forget, he codifies it. He writes it down in a stony, permanent word. Look at verse 27 and 28. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So we're going to write it down for one. 28, so he was there with the Lord, Moses, 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He was feasting. His life was on the Lord. And then, I think the implication is, God wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. These words of the covenant, they've been preserved, recodified, and put on tablets of stone, again, to show this is a strong arrangement we have, you and me. And so verse 27, Moses obediently writes down the book of the covenant. This is probably chapters 21 and 23 of Exodus. And then God remakes at the end, writing again with his finger on those stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, the summary of their relationship. And what's this all saying? We're back on. The relationship, we're back together again. Let's start over. I'm your God. You're my people. Here's the proof of it. We got the receipt of it. These stone tablets, this enduring nature of my commitment to you. Don't forget it. And the same is true for us. Just like Israel, we need reminders. Regular reminders because we're so prone to wander. The Lord knows this. The Lord knows this, and so he gave us this table. Let me remind you all about the table. Here's what he says. King Jesus commands us to remember his cross. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. He he doesn't give us any feasts, really, right? Christmas and Easter, they're not in the Bible. This is what he gives us. And what does he say? Paul's rehearsing it. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So even Paul's writing to Corinthians, let me remind you about something. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. You need to remember that I gave my body on your behalf. And then he says, do this. Jesus said, do this. It's a command in remembrance of me. You have to remember this. In the same way also, Paul continues, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, that's a command. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Jesus commands his church regularly, regularly to remember the cross Amen. at this table. That's what it's for. So you never forget, why can I have a relationship with God? Is God really for me? Uh, maybe I would rather go with the world. God's saying, put that all aside. Remember this, I died for you. I bought you. I redeemed you. You're mine. Never forget this. He baked into the rhythm of our life as a church to regularly gather, to stop and say, yes, the only reason I have hope with God, the only reason it's well with my soul when he comes back is because Jesus died for me. And that's the way we make it all the way to when he comes back. Now, Jesus, in his brilliance and care for us, has commanded us to observe this table. But dare I say, we will not get a day in the Christian life without going back and remembering the gospel. That is, you don't need this table to do that, though thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us that. But every day, our Christian life is built on going back and remembering what Christ has done. You know, we use the expression around here, I preach the gospel to my soul every day. You know, you get out of bed and your soul... It's just naturally telling you all kinds of things. Or we turn on the radio or listen to the podcast or turn on the TV or go on the Internet. And there's all kinds of messages going at us telling us all kinds of things. And and the call is here. No, you need to preach to your soul. You need to preach those realities. Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead and he's interceding for me and I am his. That's the word we need as we walk forward every day. And I've said it again. But now I'm going to give the mic over to good Puritan Dr. John Owen, and he's going to tell us, what does this mean to daily remember the gospel? And really, it's by faith to apply what Christ has done every day to our own souls. So he puts it like this. This is faith's great and bold venture upon the grace and truth of God. This is faith's bold work. What is it? To stand by the cross and say, ah! He is bruised for my sins and wounded for my transgressions, and the chastisement of my peace is upon him. He is thus made sin for me, and here I give my sins to him because he is able to bear them and to undergo them. He actually requires it of my hands and that I should be content, and he should undertake for them. And that I would heartily consent unto, that I would, that is, willingly give them over and be just content there. And then Owen adds this. He says, this is every day's work for the Christian. That's what we do. Every day we rehearse those truths. He was bruised for me, wounded for me, and he's content to take it for me. And that's where I live. And then Owen adds this. I know not how any peace can be maintained with God without it. That's got to be our work. Because why? We're prone to wander. We're prone to go find peace in any other place, really. Right? Like what places? We'll try and find peace for our souls in our good works, our religious zeal. I cut a big check at the end of the year for the church. There's not peace there. Or we'll try and find peace for our flesh. You know, we're looking for security. We're looking for joy. We're looking for health. We're looking for the world's pleasures. We're looking for the world's messages. The world telling us things like, God loves you just the way you are. Listen, we put all that aside and we remember the cross of Christ. We never forget and move on from this truth. I'm a guilty wretch who has offended a thrice holy God, yes, but I know I have a greater Savior in heaven and he's paid it all for my sin. And if we'd remember that, That, Owen goes on to say, will so endear your soul to him, you will stay true. Because where else can we go? Finally, if we're going to stay true as well, the third strategy we see here is that we have to be constantly changed by the word. If you're going to stay true, you need to be listening intently to the word of God and listen in a way to be constantly, continually changed. That's how we stay true. Because here's the thing, Moses has been on Mount Sinai, he's been listening to God for the past 40 days and 40 nights, and he doesn't even realize it, but he's a changed man as he comes down that mountain, and it's apparent to everybody. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, this is unique in Scripture. Cell phone in the dark night of your bedroom. God's light is just beaming off Moses' face because God was speaking with him. And he's coming down the mountain. And they're seeing this. And where we're trying to pull out our phones and, like, record it, they're really scared when they see this. Look at verse 40. Or, excuse me, verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses... And behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses' face here shines with the glory of God. And they remember, because their stiff-neckedness and their sinfulness, when the glory of God gets close, that's not good for them. That's a scary thing. It seems like Moses is coming to bring the judgment of God's glory upon them. Well, is that what's going to happen? Well, no, certainly not Exactly. Let's look at verse 31 it's as if Moses coming down the people are scattering verse 31 Moses calls to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation return to Moses and Moses talks with them and afterward all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai Moses radiant face was proof that he had seen the glorious God And yet, the Israelites still found this so troubling, so strange. And it seems like to even be near them, Moses had to veil his face the rest of the time. Verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And evidently, this seems the pattern for the rest of Moses' interaction with Israel. He would unveil his face when he goes into the tent of meeting to talk with God And his face would absorb in some way and reflect the glory of God. And so when he goes out to meet the people, he would give them the message of God. But then after he gave them God's word, he would veil up again and cover it. Because the people couldn't stand it. They were too afraid. I think because they knew all about their sin. What did this show us? Even in this old covenant, as God's getting so close, there's still a barrier between God and his people. They can't take a direct interaction with the glory of God. There's going to be, we talked about this, there's veils in the temple, right? That keep people away out of God's presence. And there's a veil even on Moses' face. Why? Because a barrier's still here. And so they can only get so close, they can only know God so well, or only know his glory for so long until Christ comes. And that all changes. And you know why? Because that barrier between you and God is gone. And you get to, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, you get to see with the eyes of faith the glory of God. He says it like this. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's put in our heart to see God, but where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Because through that sin-defeating mediator, in his face we get to see he is merciful, he is gracious, and gracious truth has come to us. But here's the thing, Paul talks about this as well in 2 Corinthians. When you get to see God, and you get to see him and his mercy to you, and his grace to you, when you've seen the glory of God, like Moses, it changes you. It's seen on your face. Paul puts it like this. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil's removed. He's, he's quoting from Exodus. Just like Moses and he went in and goes in and he takes off the veil to talk with God, that's happened by faith when we get to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then what happens? And we, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Those go together. You see the greatness of Jesus, you are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You really encounter the glory of God by Jesus Christ, you will become like him. The more you look at Christ, the more you see how merciful he is to you, right? How gracious he is to you, how slow to anger he is to you, how abounding in steadfast love he is to you. The more you see that, the more you start to imitate it. The more you start to become Christ-like. And notice it doesn't all happen in one go either. It's not, oh, I see Jesus and boom, I'm a perfect Christian. That's evident as I look at my life. No, he talks about this gradual, incremental transformation. Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's like one more turn on the dial, but becoming more like our gracious and merciful Jesus. The more... You look at him each degree, the more you see his mercy, by every degree you get changed to be like him. Okay, two things fall out of this for us, okay? First, you got to look more and more regularly into the book. You got to regularly be in the scripture. This is how you encounter Jesus Christ. If you're going to see the glory of God, you got to be in the book, okay? We're in a new year. It's time to start the new year Bible reading plan, right? You can read through the Bible this year. You can read through the New Testament. You can read through one book for a month, like Ephesians. It's an awesome thing to do. You can memorize Colossians. You can read alone. You can read with somebody else. You can read on an app. You can read on a phone. I sound like Dr. Seuss trying to read your Bible, right? You can read in the morning with a black cup of coffee, and to that I say amen. But the point is, you got to get in the book. It doesn't really matter how much you read. It doesn't matter how long you read, really. But are you reading? Are you prayerfully reading and searching and begging to see, can I see the greatness of Jesus Christ to me here? Frankly, you might do better doing one verse at a time than 10 chapters a day. Both are good, but set up a habit to look in the book this year. Okay, but perhaps more importantly, as we look in the book, you got to look to then be ready to be changed. Read the Bible each day to be changed by Jesus Christ. Every sermon you hear, be ready to be changed by it. Every passage you memorize, be ready to be transformed in your thinking and in your living to be more like Christ. The point is, don't be a passive listener. Don't wait for the word to just wake up and hit you. Don't Rick. Don't wait for Rick to just say, finally, the interesting thing that makes it worth it. It's not about that, is it? It's about we open the book and we're praying, Spirit, show us Jesus Christ. And I know if I see him, I'm going to be changed. Help me, see, help me see how I need to be changed. And that means perhaps, I know for me, be as specific as possible what this change needs to look like. Write it out. Like Don't just, oh, read the Bible, marked it off the Bible app. Take a moment and pray and reflect, God, because you're like this and because you've been so good to me, how do I be different today? I've seen how you're gracious. I know I need to be gracious to this coworker today. Oh, I've seen how you were good and righteous. I need to make sure I'm righteous with my neighbor today. I need to see how I need to care for my kids today like you cared for your people in the wilderness. I've been begrudging this responsibility with my wife. Oh, help me. You've been such a good savior. I need you X, Y, Z and write it out and pray, Lord, help me because I can't do this without you. But every time we come to the book, we need to be listening, but not passively, listening to be actively transformed. Let us not get comfortable getting in the book and walking away the same. Because if that's happening, that means you're not seeing, Veiled face, beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Look for him and then be ready for him to convict and to encourage and to change. Let's pray for that. And as I pray I'm going to ask the men who have already been designated to come forward to distribute the elements as we prepare to take the lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. And you're so merciful and gracious, and you are a glorious God. And uh, we thank you for this, that you would share that with us, that you would show us that by Christ to see how good you are. Forgive us for not seeing as we ought, for the glory is there. We do pray for spiritual eyes to see. Forgive us for taking the light we have seen and not changing, not being transformed. You came to save sinners, that's no mystery. Let our sins be exposed to make us more like Christ. We thank you that you're gracious. We need it. Remind us of that as we partake of this table. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.